you know, that's why we teach children classically as well, because you want them to understand what has happened in the past so they can make their own decisions about how our country should be run. I think a lot of people who think misguided, I think they're misguided about the way that the country should be run and what our future should look like is because they don't understand the history of our country and of the world. And they've been lied to in schools especially. And so we're doing everything that we can to change that. Hey, Joyful Warriors, Tiffany Justice here with Moms for Liberty. Welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. And today we are joined by an OG mom, a mom who was on the school board before Tina and I was on the school board in our own counties, Erica Donalds. Erica, you served in Collier County on the school board there. Is that correct? That's right. I got elected back in 2014. Wow. And so you have three boys. How old were your boys when you were elected? So it's almost 10 years ago. So they would have been about 11, 7, and 3. They were they were little and they were school age. And that was really what motivated me to get involved in education in the first place. So what were you doing as far as work was concerned? What, what was your like normal day job? Well, I'm a CPA. So I was in investment management. I was the chief financial officer for an investment management firm which actually caused me to travel a lot. So um, it, I was very busy. I was a busy mom. and But, you know, I, I ran into an issue that the school board, I thought, was making the wrong decision about. And it kind of woke me up to the fact that the school board had no care about what parents wanted in this particular situation or seemingly any other. All right, so let's hear that story. What got you involved in running for school board? Yeah, it's an interesting story that people don't expect. Actually, my children were in an elementary school that had a particular after-school program for about 14 years run by a nonprofit called Sports Club. And the district decided that Sports Club was making too much money off of their after-school program, and they wanted to capture that money for themselves. So without asking the people who actually pay for the after-school program, the parents, uh, they decided to take it over, change the pricing, change the structure, eliminate after-school sports practices, which we depended on to have our evenings, you know, at home with, as a family. And it really upset a lot of us parents. You know, we got together, did petitions. We all went to the school board meeting. We all spoke in favor of keeping sports club. And I look up at the dais and out of five members of the school board, none of them had children in school and nor had they had children in school for decades. They were all talking about how things were when their kids were in school and seemingly making decisions that had nothing to do with the way things were today. They listened to a hundred parents say, please don't make this decision. And they treated us with complete contempt. Like, well, you don't know what you're talking about and you're here today, but you'll be gone tomorrow and we'll still be here. And so that group turned into a group called Parents Rock. And, you know, spoiler alert, they got rid of our program anyway. Um, so Parents Rights of Choice for Kids was born. And we started interviewing school board candidates to see who we were going to support in the next election because we were definitely ousting the ones who treated us that way. And uh, I basically drew the short straw and I ended up being the one from our group to run. 
Awesome. And so what did your husband Byron think of that? What did the kids think about that? Was everybody super excited about you running for office? Well, not really. I will say, you know, I'm a perpetual volunteer. We were very involved in our church. We were youth leaders. I was volunteering for a summer camp that I went to as a kid, as a board member. And my husband's like, you need to make a list of all the things that you're doing and eliminate everything else besides being on the school board and working and being a mom and a wife. And I did that. I gave up every other volunteer effort. And you know how much it takes to serve on the school board. I, of course, had to get my boss's permission to do it as well. So I definitely sacrificed a lot of personal time and energy, but because I put so much into it, I learned a tremendous amount, both about my job, about what parents are going through, the realities of public education, and frankly, how broken the system is. So one of the things I talk about on this podcast a lot that Tina and I, when we do interviews, we talk about if school board is as much of a job as you make it. Um, kind of like being a mom too, right? As the more you're involved in the day-to-day, the, the bigger the job gets. And so um, school board for me was really interesting because I came into it and my area of weakness was definitely the, definitely the budgeting area. I, the idea of managing that size budget, just the way that they would talk about the way the money was spent, the way it was categorized was very complicated. Now I've since learned that it, it's complicated sometimes intentionally. So, right, on purpose. Um, and, and sometimes because they're just bad at their jobs, to be honest with you. So you came into school board and you have this background as a CPA um, and now you're a mom with kids in school. I can't even imagine what that glimpse behind the education curtain was like for you. Give us a little bit of insight, especially around the budget. Like what were your first thoughts when you when you were elected? Yeah, of, of course, with my background, that's the first thing I wanted to dig into because I felt like that's what I could bring to the table. And it all comes back to the money, right? If you want to make changes, you go through the budget, that's where you can really bring things to light or see what's going on. So I actually met with staff for hours and hours and over and over again with the budget staff, having them explain everything to me, the reporting structure, what rolls into what, how do they evaluate expenses, how do they budget. So I learned as much as I could before I started digging in. But what we did, and I was able to get the rest of my school board members to agree, and that was rare since I was in the minority, that we should look at ROI on all of these additional expenses. And at the time, there was a lot of ed tech fads going on. We were buying every different software. The SEL software was coming into being. And I did get them to, when we were re-upping each one of those softwares, put together an ROI spreadsheet or an ROI uh, form that said, this is what we're getting out of it. This is the increase in student performance. Or you know, if they didn't have any evidence of that, here's how much it's costing us per student. And we eliminated a lot of just junk, excess stuff out of that, um, as well as looking at org charts. That was another thing. What does this person do? What does this person do? What does this role do? Um, you know, Sunshine is always the best disinfectant. And the budget was a good place because of my background. I had some credibility there to start there and really start to call out a lot of the waste or just things that we really shouldn't be spending taxpayer money on. I think that's a really good point. So I, I mentioned this was an area of weakness for me, and I, I kind of took the same approach as you as, as far as studying, digging in, you know, meeting with staff, asking questions, making them explain it to me, and and ask, and then in kind of you know asking some pointed questions, right? Because sometimes with school districts, the why things are happening is is normally because it's just the way it's always been done. Yeah. Right. That's and the answer a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and so, you know, when you come in and you're new, you're asking a lot of questions that could be seen. You could be seen as a bit of a disruptor. I, I don't know that that's ever the, the true goal. I don't think I, you know, I didn't come on the school board, you know, from an adversarial position, but it did sometimes feel adversarial when I would start questioning. Right. And so any tips and hints? Cause I know there are a lot of people that are listening right now who are joining school boards or thinking about joining. Um, how do you make that change happen in a productive way? Yeah, I think you have to keep in mind that these staff members are just there to do their jobs. Most of them are not driving an agenda. They're just doing the accounting or the budgeting. They're doing what they're instructed to do by the superintendent. And maybe there's people who are higher at the top who have some sort of an agenda. But certainly the people who are working in the budget office who are booking debits and credits are not there to like overhaul the system into, you know, CRT and the things that we're fighting. Um, so I think just treating with them with professionalism and and respect and allowing them to voice what they have to say. You can ask pointed questions without it being accusatory. And I had a great relationship with the staff. And I think that went a really long way because I couldn't get things done at the dais uh, being in the minority, but I could get a lot done meeting with staff and making suggestions that once they trusted me that I was not there to make them look bad or I didn't have a political agenda necessarily, that I was just there to do the best I could for the kids. I really got a lot of my work done behind the scenes in meeting with staff and making those recommendations. So I think that's one thing that people can do, especially if you're in the minority and it's difficult to get things done at the dais. Um, have a great relationship with those staff members, the ones who are actually putting together the student progression plan, uh, putting together the code of conduct. I mean, in those areas, I feel like I made a lot of changes and, and ground that no one really even knows about at this point. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, so you served from 2014 to 2018. Um, what did you did you run again? Um, and how did you make the decision to to how you would move forward? Yeah, I decided not to run again. It, there was a lot that went into it. Uh, we lost the midterm election. I will sell, tell you the unions came in and they made sure that we were not going to win a majority. There were two of us, parents, uh, more conservative members elected in 2014, and there were two more seats up in 2018. And we were, of course, looking to add a third vote. Um, so we had two candidates, but the union came in and spent almost a half a million dollars which was wow. unprecedented for two seats, and they just totally clobbered us. But at the same time, my husband had gotten elected to the state house, and so he was doing his work there going back and forth to Tallahassee. Of course, the kids are getting older, you know, my career. There was just so many different things going on. It was really difficult to give my full time and attention the way I wanted to into school board. And I just had other ideas of ways that I could contribute from an education perspective that I wanted to move on to. So I want to get to that because what you're doing now is exciting, but I want to talk a little bit more before we move on about your time on the school board. Um, one of the things that I noticed was how much influence the union had in the way that the district would operate. Sometimes it was shocking to see the influence that they had. I recently learned that in New York City public schools, back to school night is still virtual because the union actually bargained it into their contract. Um, so in my district, you know, kids were eating lunch at 1030 in the morning. Why was that bargaining contract? We we had early right. release days on Wednesdays. Why was that bargaining contract, right? And so you tell a story about your time on school board um, and, and trying to make some change and how the union interfered. And I just think that's something that more Americans need to understand because you are a real champion for a, a school in your district, right? 
actually a whole area of my district that uh, is a low-income area. There are a lot of migrants in Immokalee, Florida, and it's been forgotten, not just from an education perspective, but even the county commission. You know, They have the worst parks. They have the worst facilities. They have the worst schools. They have the worst performance. And what I found was that they also had the least experienced teachers. And we were able to, again, going back to like get with the staff, ask questions and try to call out some statistics that you can use that no one can deny. And for me, that was that in Immokalee, in that area of towns, all Title I schools, 20% of their teachers were brand new teachers in one to three years. And in the rest of the county, that number was only 6%. So a huge inequality there for the students who really needed the most help. A lot of English language learners out there as well. And so I said, you know, at the very least, we need to even this out. So how can we do that? How about we put a bonus pool together where teachers who are high performing veteran teachers that we will pay them over a three year period an increasing amount of a bonus. So if it's $1,500 the first year, $4,000 the second year, $7,000 the third year, just to try to keep them out there for an extended period of time, maybe they'll fall in love with those kids and really want to work in that area. But of course, I wanted to target veteran high-performing teachers because the problem was that you had all these new teachers out there because the unions allow teachers to select their, you know, the seniority-based selection, and they're getting paid the same if they're in a middle-class school in town versus in a low-income, very difficult school out in Immokalee, which is a good 45-minute drive from where we live. So I was able to secure a pot of money before union negotiations began, and my fellow board members agreed with this plan. But once it got to the bargaining table, what they came back with that they made a deal with the union was that every single teacher who works at Immokalee is going to get $2,500 for one year. So what did that do to the statistic where 6% of the rest of the county had brand new teachers and 20% in Immokalee? It did absolutely nothing to affect that statistic and has done absolutely nothing to affect the children of Immokalee, unfortunately. And so the fight lives on. We still have to continue to try this. You know, I really believe that teachers want to do the extra work, but they also, like anyone, want to be compensated for a harder sure. job. And they should be. And so especially if they're high-performing teachers, they should be compensated for that. So I was trying to do that and I was thwarted, but that's just one of so many stories where the union put the needs and desires of adults before children. And that was even before COVID where we saw that just absolutely explode. Which was mind blowing. So you talk about the union. What I've seen as a school board member was that the union bargains for the people at the table and the people at the table are normally the most senior people. And so when I would go visit my kids' schools or talk to teachers at other schools and I'd say, you know, there's a bargaining meeting. Do you know what's being bargained? Like, you know, are you guys up to date? They really didn't, you know, we wouldn't even get into the details. I was just like, you guys should really pay attention, right? I mean, I think that there are teachers in the schools who have no idea what the union is doing and the union's just like, oh, no, no, be quiet. You just trust us. We've got oh, your yeah. backs, right? But when, even when I look at the United Auto Workers Union, Erica, and I look at the striking that happens, okay, they're striking against big business, right? They've got these companies that are making a ton of money. You've got the Biden administration administration changing and trying to push EVs, subsidizing electric, electric vehicles, right? And you have people on the ground that are saying, we want to be paid our fair wages. We want to be considered When the teachers unions are striking, like during COVID, for example, even when we saw like the Los Angeles Teachers Union, right? And they said, um, 
They wanted to defund the police. That was part of their bargaining structure was they wanted the police defunded. Like who are the teachers unions fighting against? Right. The people, the taxpayers, it doesn't make any sense. No. And speaking of LA, this was another example that's kind of along the lines of of my story when after COVID, we saw these studies that these kids need like four months of additional schooling to get caught up. I mean, it's like these kids are never getting caught up. And yeah. uh, Alberto Carvalho, who went from Miami into LA uh, USD, was negotiating with the union post COVID to get some extra time in the calendar for students who really need this extra learning. And he wanted 10 days. And not only would they not give him 10 days, but the three days he was able to get are optional for both students and teachers. So again, the students need four months of additional learning and the union wouldn't even give him three solid days or the 10 days he was asking for. So how much do they really care about the students? It's not like he wasn't trying to pay them for those days. He was, but he was trying to get the students what they need and the union was bargaining them right out of it. No, and I think it's so interesting. And I guess, you know, from the the from a forward-facing position, you look and you say, well, Carvalho looks like he's getting along with the unions, but it's this kind of, you know, weird backroom negotiations and then nobody's really being honest with the American public. So parents, again, I think the building relationships part is one of the most important things that you can do, whether you're on a school board, whether you're just a parent in the district, try to yeah. meet with your superintendent, try to go and meet with staff, try to understand what is happening. Because really, I don't believe that the unions have any solid ground to stand on. It's just that there's this secrecy pact <laughs> between everyone to not say anything bad. And the truth is that the unions are hurting our kids. And during COVID, we saw that directly. So you must have been dying. I mean, <sighs> You're not on, I was on school board during COVID, Mm -hmm. right? March 13th, schools close in Florida. Bridget's on school board. Our friend Bridget Ziegler, Tina Deskovich is on school board. I'm on school board. You're watching, Erica, uh, the union, Randy Weingarten meeting with Rochelle Lewinsky and all of this backroom, backdoor negotiation. What were you thinking? Well, first of all, I had just opened my first school. I know we're going to get into Optima Ed and some of the things that we've done, but our first school year at the first school we ever opened, charter school, was 2019-2020. So I was living it from a school operator perspective and also dealing with the school board in Martin County and them listening to the unions and the battle there. But we were determined to stay open. We were determined not to have mask mandates, of course, in our school. But we had to negotiate with the school district in order to open and operate because they had to approve our plans. In Collier, you know, they had this parade where they had a hearse and, you know, death Santas and all the things that the horrible things that they were saying about those of us who were advocating in-person learning. And watching that from the sidelines, you're absolutely right, was infuriating. But I really felt bad for you and Tina and Bridget having to make these decisions because they were being so awful as if you didn't care about the safety of children, but they were absolutely putting themselves first. I loved you know, some of the exposure that they got for going on vacation, going out to dinner, going out to you know, shopping and things like that, while they wouldn't go to work and teach our children after it was well proven that the children were not the ones who were most affected by by COVID. So I think COVID was awful. It was an awful thing for all of us to go through. My son was a senior in the midst of it, as you know, and your, you know, your children were affected. Um, however, the curtains were pulled back on education. And it did give an opportunity for organizations like Moms for Liberty to gather up these moms who are now exposed to what's really going on. You and I had seen it from the inside, from school board. And education is never going to be the same. And we're all better for that. 
Amen. I, we talk about it all the time. COVID lemonade, right? You know, when life hands you lemons, you know, we're going to yes. make lemonade. And so you spend all this time on school board. You get to see the way that public schools are operating. And, and then you say, okay, I, you're going to take this knowledge and you're going to start creating better opportunities for learning for students. So Optima Ed, tell us all about the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I knew I needed to do something with my extra energy and passion for education and everything that I had learned on the school board. And then also working at the state level, since I couldn't get a lot done on the school board, I actually turned my attention to the state advocating for school choice policy and reforms um, that we really needed in every district in, in Florida. So uh, that was very interesting to me. And I kind of rolled all that up into a charter uh, management organization called Optima Ed. And like I said, we opened our first school in 2019. Little did we know that we would be getting hit with a pandemic in our first year. We had already planned on our second school to open in 2020 in Jacksonville. So we basically opened that school in the middle of the pandemic in, a, in an area that was very, you know, it's a blue area in Jacksonville. So it was totally different. They were not on board with in-person learning and no masks. So that was a whole different challenge. Um, and then we opened a school a year ever since then, including the world's first virtual reality school, uh, which is now available tuition free across the state of Florida and in Arizona and in every state where ESAs are offered. We're trying to bring it there. All of these centered around what really got me passionate about education, and that's the classical model of education. I helped as a volunteer parent to start a school here back in 2012. We opened in 2014. And so I had some experience as a parent volunteer helping to open a charter school and use that as well as all that experience in, in um, the school board to open these classical charter schools to create a classical online public school that anyone can access no matter where they live. And now really the most exciting part of my job now is that we've created this classical curriculum. And because it is technology forward, we have the virtual reality component. We're actually working with districts and other non-classical independent schools and charter schools who want our curriculum in their schools because they like the technology. But we're you know, excited about expanding access to classical education even beyond our own students. So God has really opened some incredible doors. And I think when you just follow his lead and allow him to take you where he leads you and open the doors that he'll open and you just walk through them, you know, he can really do so much more than we could have imagined. Absolutely. So tell us about classical education. There might be someone listening here and that may be a new term for them. So can you explain how that's a little bit different than maybe what we're seeing in public schools across America? Yeah, classical, as opposed to what we would call progressive education, is focused on knowledge and virtue. And it is the way a lot of us were educated. You know, you're probably talking to some younger moms, um, but my generation and, and older than mine, many were educated using traditional methods explicit phonics, explicit grammar, diagramming sentences, memorizing poetry, memorizing timelines and dates and biographies, knowing all of the history of our country and not people's opinions about that history, but actually reading the Constitution and the Federalist Papers and coming to conclusions yourself, knowing the true history of the world based on real accounts, learning Latin so that you can actually read uh, the Latin accounts of uh, Western history and Western civilization is really studying our history, the history of America and our place in the world that brings that full classical education to light, uh, life on top of reading the great books, 
You know, things that have written have been written today are good. Some of them may stand the test of time, but a classic book has already stood the test of time. And that's why we focus on learning from those characters and that literature that we know is going to instill virtues in our children and make them well-rounded, successful citizens. That's wonderful. And so if people want to find out more about, uh, we're going to talk about some other things, but I, I just want people to know right now, if they want to learn more about Optima Ed, about the idea of classical education, charter schools, give us some, who should they be following? What kind of research can they do? Well, sure. You can start with Optima Academy online at optimaacademy.online. There's Lots of information there about classical education, about the courses that we offer, the things that we do, that anyone, again, anyone in the country can actually access this classical education. And for as many people as we can possibly make it, it's tuition free. Um, But there are many resources out there for uh, people to learn more about classical education itself. Um, Hillsdale College, we partnered with them to open several brick and mortar schools. Uh, They have an entire site about classical education, a lot of great videos, actually. That's how I learned was through the Hillsdale videos about classical education because they have teachers talking about it, they have parents talking about it, and even students about their experience in these classical schools. So definitely want to use that as a resource. They have have links to essays at hillsdalecharter.com, I believe. It is, but Hillsdale Charter Schools has lots of resources there about classical education as well. Wonderful. So um, for those of you that don't know, Erica spoke briefly about her husband, Byron. Byron Donald's now uh, a member of Congress, a representative from Florida. Um, My favorite Byron moment, I've told him this, I will say it again. I've learned a lot from watching his interviews because he is dynamic, I think, when he is interviewed and he always knows how to get his point across. Um, I watched him in an interview the other day. He went to answer a question. He said, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to talk about this first. And he did. And then he went and answered the question. But he always gets his point across. He's always very direct and clear. He uses plain language so that people can understand what he's talking about and why it's important. Um, I'm sitting in my house watching uh, the speaker race, right? When when Congress uh, came back and they were electing a speaker and Byron got nominated to be Speaker of the House and I was dying, Erica. Um, what I was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is Byron. He's getting, I mean, I know this guy, right? And here he's being nominated to be Speaker of the House. What was going on when all of this is playing out in Congress, like what's going on with you guys? Is it, Are you just free? Could you even believe it? Well, no. And all the kids were home, including my college son. He was on uh, January term. So he was home and we were watching and we got so excited when Chip Roy actually voted for Byron in one of the early rounds. We were like, oh my gosh, you know, how amazing that you actually, someone voted for you for Speaker of the House. Yeah. He wasn't nominated. He just, he got I'm a sorry, vote, okay. which yeah. we thought yeah. was amazing. But he called me. I was actually in a meeting with some attorneys. I was at work and he was calling me and I know it had been crazy with all of the stuff that was going on. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I need to excuse myself for a second. Let me just take this call from my husband because I hadn't had a chance to talk to him. So he tells me um, they're going to nominate me for Speaker of the House. And I was just like, what? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So I, I ran into the bathroom actually, because I didn't have a like private place to talk to him. So, um, we prayed, um, and he, he tells the story. He cried. He was like, I don't think I'm ready for that. You know, my sons are little. I, you know, I don't think it's a, he didn't think it was necessarily, uh, um, probable for him to get it, but still just the weight of people thinking of him for that responsibility, I think just weighed really heavy on him. And 
I told him whatever God calls you to do, he will equip all of us to do with you. So we're just going to pray and believe him and just go with it. So I go back into the meeting and of course they can tell I'm like, uh, you know, completely distracted. I said, (laughs) so my husband's about to be nominated for speaker of the house. So do you mind if I turn on the TV? And they were like, yeah, let's watch. So me and these attorneys that were in the room were all just watching on C-SPAN. As it happened. And then the kids and I watched C-SPAN and just watched the whole thing unfold for the remainder of the week. Like it was a reality show, you know? Um, And I'm so proud of him. He's really in his element and people recognize the level of leadership and commitment that he has to this country, which is why even as a freshman and, um, and now a sophomore, he's being put in positions of influence up there, which I think is amazing. But really, I hope people learn from him in that, you know, he came to conservatism and to his ideas about America through study. He grew up in Democrat, you know, Brooklyn, New York. He didn't have any real political views, nor did I really, um, aside from just what you get from your family. But until we started living it and studying it and understanding the different philosophies of politics, that's what made us kind of choose a side and get involved. And I think when your heart you really come to this knowledge because you've studied it yourself and you understand the background, why people do the things they do and why it turns out the way it turns out in the end for different countries in the history of the world. You know, that's why we teach children classically as well, because you want them to understand what has happened in the past so they can make their own decisions about how our country should be run. I think a lot of people who think misguided, I think they're misguided about the way that the country should be run and what our future should look like is because they don't understand the history of our country and of the world. And they've been lied to in schools, especially. And so we're doing everything that we can to change that. And you're doing a really wonderful job. I just want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast and being able to learn a little bit more about your journey on school board and how it inspired you to get more involved. Um, I think that that to me is the most interesting place of where we are right now. I, I look at you. You ran for school board. You served in elected office. You know, it wasn't I served. It wasn't anything I had ever really thought that I would do. I wasn't a particularly political person, right, Byron? Not a, a very political person in general, but got involved in politics. And we have a whole new group of Americans who yeah. are now running for office, right? Cutting their teeth on school board or in other positions, local politics, getting well-known. Who knows what what does America look like in four years, in eight years, um, if we can keep this republic going, right? What does, it, what does America look like going forward with all of these new people engaged in politics and having their voices heard? I think for a lot of us, you know, you don't really think this is the path for you, right? Or you just don't realize that this government doesn't work well without us, but things right. are changing. Yes, we yeah. need more and more citizens to step up to the plate. If you think that it's not you because you're not a political person, you, you're not the type of person to run for office, that's exactly why you should, because we can't leave it to the people who have political ambitions to run our lives, right? They, because they're interested in their political ambitions or their next political office. And those are the worst people, frankly, that you want in those positions. You want just regular citizens who are doing it because of experience that they've had where they were either negatively or positively affected by what is going on in our government, in our schools, and that they're going to be able to take that experience and bring it to the table. Not for very long, because we do believe in term limits, but um, but certainly it is a testament to the movement that you're leading and that I'm just grateful to be a part of, that more and more citizens are rising up and going, you know what, I can do that too. 
I can help. I can do my part. I can serve a term or two, but then I'm going to go back to my regular life. And I think that's what our founding fathers intended. And so I commend you guys for equipping so many parents across the country to do this great work. It's gone well beyond what I could have ever imagined. I'm just so proud of you and Tina for what you've been able to accomplish. It's absolutely awesome. And it's because of women like you and Bridget and, and other women across the country that, you know, we've been inspired to step up and and we know if if not us, then who? Right? That's, right. That's what our moms know. That you know, they 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 people ask our moms sometimes, you know, oh, I have they I have trouble sleeping. And our moms are like, I'm not having trouble sleeping. I'm working really hard every <laughs> I'm day, right? I'm exhausted. <laughs> That's right. Erica Donalds, thank you so much for joining us. We wish Byron well and all of his future endeavors. We are thankful for his representation in Congress. Um, and Erica, as we close out, give people one more time if they want to learn more about Optima Ed, they want to learn more about classical education, uh, tell them where they can go. You can get started at OptimaAcademy.online. It's OptimaAcademy.online. Tell you all about classical education and all the things that we offer at Optima Ed and whether you can access classical education tuition free. Wonderful. Thank you, Erica. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. 